This is an ABC podcast. Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander listeners, please be advised that this conversation contains content that might be upsetting. Please use discretion when listening. Today we're bringing you a special conversation with Archie Roach, a Gunditjmara, Bunjalung senior elder, songman and storyteller. Archie passed away on Saturday. Our condolences go to his family and many, many friends. I had the privilege of speaking with Archie in 2019. Archie Roach grew up thinking that his name was Archibald Cox. But when he was 14, a letter arrived for Archie at his high school. And that letter gave him back his real name. Discovering he was Archie Roach and that he had brothers and sisters led him to leave the home he knew to search for his birth family. One by one, Archie found his sisters and his brothers and he pieced together his story. He discovered that his mum's family had been living around Warrnambool at the mouth of the Hopkins River for tens of thousands of years. There had been good fishing there, open fires on the beach and forests full of life. But when Archie was just a toddler, government authorities took him from his mum and dad. He was sent to an orphanage with his big sisters and then on his own to foster families. Like many of the stolen generations, Archie ended up on the streets and drinking hard. But through it all, he had music. And once he got sober, Archie Roach became one of Australia's most beloved and powerful singer-songwriters. His new memoir is called Tell Me Why. Hi, Archie. Welcome to Conversations. Thank you, Sarah. Back when you were 14, Archie, and you were in English class at high school, an announcement came through the speaker. Who did they want down at the office? They asked for an Archibald, William Roach, to come, please come to the office. And was that you? I wasn't sure at first. Uh, I'd been using my foster parents' name, which was Cox. And so I'd been using that uh, for a good while now. Did you know that Roach was your real last name? It was f- familiar. And it, it, there was something about the name that, that uh, rang true. And uh, so uh, I thought after a while that, uh, yeah, I think, I think that's me. After um, asking an English teacher, Mrs. Peters, you know, I told her, I said, um, I think that's, that's me. And she said, well, well, you better get to the office then, Archie. And uh, I, I went into the office and, and the secretary um, looked at me and said, are you Archibald William Roach? And I said, uh, I believe so. I think so. I'm not sure. She said, well, this must be for you. And she handed me a, a letter, which was addressed to Archibald William Roach, care of Lilydale High School. I looked at the back first, because uh, when people used to write letters, uh, they, they'd usually um, write on the back the, the sender of the letter, and it was from a, a woman called Myrtle from um, Toxteth Road in Glebe, Sydney, New South Wales, and... Uh, so that was a bit confusing, but I opened the letter and um, the very first thing it said, it said, Dear Brother. I said, Brother, Dear Brother, our dear old mum passed away a week ago. And um, she told me about, you know, where she'd passed away. 
ironically, was, was, wasn't far from where I was going to school, you know, just up the road, more or less. Yeah, so that was the, the first thing she wrote, and uh, that stopped me in my tracks for a while before I read the rest of the letter, yeah. And what else did she say? She said, um, I thought I'd get in touch with you about your family. It was, it was time to get in touch with you about your family. She mentioned my 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 brothers, two brothers and uh, sisters, including herself. And she said that Dad, our father, had also pa- passed away before Mum. And uh, I was named after him. His name was Archie. She ended 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 it and said, um, "We love you," and um, had to let you know about Mum. Those names that she mentioned, Archie, of your brothers and your sisters, did you know any of those names? There were two names. There were two names that rung, that were very familiar, and that was um, Granny and Gladys and uh, Diana. And uh, it brought back memories of two girls that were with me in the, in the car going down to Melbourne and then in the the orphanage that we were sent to in the suburb of Melbourne, Camberwell, yeah. So these were memories from way, way back yeah. in your childhood. Yeah. Had you thought about that time much? Not really. If I did, there were glimpses. I know that, that there might have been brief glimpses here and there, but I never, I don't know, I never really thought about it. I just, um, yeah, you settle into to this, this new life, which was um, something I got used to, you know being with new people, different people, and settling in. and Well, I'd been with the Coxes for a good while now. This family, the Coxes, you mm. say they just lived just a few suburbs away from where your own mum had recently been living. How, yeah. how had they come to have a young Archie? Where had they got you from? I was with a, a second family in an outer, outer suburb of Melbourne. The, the, the woman in particular wasn't really, really nice to me. She was rather cruel. You know, so we ended up, I remember being in this big place of shiny floors, stone floors and, and stairways and banisters and doors, and paintings of men in, who looked, uh, I don't know, sort of regal. And they're running around and not really realising it was, a, was a, a courthouse, a big courthouse in Melbourne. And that's when, when I met, um, met Mum Dulcie. After meeting this other little Aboriginal fella, I didn't even, you know, I didn't talk much about, I didn't even call myself Aboriginal back then, but that's when I met this other, other little bloke that looked like me. And he was already living with, with Dulcie and Alex Cox. Yeah, yeah. And what were they like? How did they treat you? Oh, beautiful people. You know, love. And uh, treated me with love. And, uh, yeah, Dad Alex was, was a beautiful man, a Scotsman. So what sort of accent did he have? Yeah, he had this. I couldn't understand him when I first went there. We, we, we um, got a taxi from the courthouse in Melbourne to to um, a suburb called Strathmore, and um, we got out of the car. And I remember we were sort of walking through this. It was a little garage, but it was an open garage with um, with ivy all around it. You know, and I had this sort of gate to go up the steps at the back, and this little. Um, he was just a little bloke, Dad Alex, you know. I mean, I was small, small myself, but, he, you know, he, he was little. He'd come running down the stairs and look at me and uh, 
And all I could hear was, ah, he's, a, he's, a, he's a Broadway lad. He's a Broadway lad. I'm going, what? He's a bonnie Broadway lad. I couldn't understand. What does it mean? What does that mean? And uh, Mum Dulce looked at me and said, you're a good boy. You're, you're, you're a strong, good, good boy. I said, oh, okay. Why couldn't he just say that? <laughs> and, uh, and she laughed. She smiled. And, and uh, you know, I remember talking, talking to Dad saying, talk to him properly, Alex. He can't understand what you're saying. He said, oh, you're a fine young boy. Just, just the presence, just, just the, his personality. You could, you could feel this, I don't know, this love or this warmth that, that he had in, in, in Mum Dulcie. And uh, Noel was there laughing, <laughs> you know, seeing this, sort of looking at me, a bit of a smile on his face as well. Was there much music in that house, Archie? Yeah, a lot of music. Um, Dad Alex had a, had a beautiful record collection, the old LPs. Looked after him, you know, you know, take him out of the sleeve, make sure they were clean and dusted before he put them away and, and, and play, play each LP. What sort of, of music were on those LPs? Well, the first couple I, I, I used to listen to were a lot of Scottish ballads, uh, beautiful songs about, you know, Wild Mountain Time and, you know, Down in the Glen and The Road and the Mars to Dundee, songs that I'll cherish and remember for a long time. And there were also songs um, by, by some dark people or black people, People like Mahalia Jackson, Nat King Cole, oh, beautiful to listen to, Ink Spots. So he had this eclectic album, uh, record collection. I'm going to say it was a joy, joy to listen to. What about music at church? Was that a part of life too? Their daughter Mary, she, she played the organ. And when I mean the organ, it was one of the old organs where you, know, you, you know, pedal organs and, you know, you pull out the levers and and probably had to keep the, the air, air pumping <laughs> yeah, with, the, with the pedal, the organ, to play it. And she played well. I said, I'm going to church and listen to her play up the front when she played. And uh, of course, you know, they're very, very um, staunch Christian family. But I used to, I, I used to like going, going there and, and uh, I found that the songs, the songs they, they used to sing in church were I used to love to sing, you know, I'm with Christian soldiers, uh, Old Rugged Cross, um, Amazing Grace, uh, How Great Thou Art. You know, like, even without church or the religion, these songs are just beautiful songs. When did Hank Williams enter the picture for you? That was further on up the track, when I was going to secondary school, Lydia High School. I joined the Pentecostals. I was there one time at a meeting, and this woman got up with a guitar and I'd never seen anybody get up with a guitar in church before. And she got up and started playing the guitar. And she sang a song, a text, or, or a verse, or two from the Bible. But it had this tune, that, this tune that, uh, this great melody, I thought. Yeah, after the meeting, I, I, I approached her and I said, wow, that was, that song, uh, what was it? And she said, oh, it's just a couple of verses from the Bible. But I put a Hank Williams tune to it. I said, Hank Williams? He said, yeah, he's a country singer. I said, country? I'm not, what's country? She goes, country music. I said, I don't think I've heard it. And uh, the song, the song that I, the, the, the tune that I used was was to his song, um, Your Cheating Heart. <laughs> I said, wow, that's interesting. I'd never heard anything like that before. And so that's when he entered the picture. And I, I went home and asked Dad Alex about, have, have you heard of Hank Williams, Dad? He goes, yes, I have, actually. And we could get some, uh, some uh, 
if you want to listen to him. I said, yeah, that'd be great. Were you playing guitar yourself? Not at the time. I was actually playing organ first, keyboard. They bought me a little keyboard with numbers on it and they gave me books with music, but they had the numbers over each. You know, so I, I just followed the numbers uh, from the book, transferred to the keys and, and uh, learned to play like that for a while. But um, after I heard this lady in, in the, uh, the Pentecostal church I was going, I started to attend, I... Um, I really, really wanted to play guitar after that because, you know, it was certainly a lot easier than lugging around a, a small, <laughs> even though it was a small, small organ, it had a bit of weight to it. So you got a guitar and, and started playing? Yeah, yeah. eventually, yeah. yeah. Mm. So this this home life with the Coxes, Archie, it sounds loving and there's music and there's closeness, mm. but then you get this letter that I guess pulls the rug out a bit from your sense of who you are and who your family is. Yes. Did you talk to Mum Dulcie and Dad Alex about that letter and ask them if they knew anything about the people who were named there, your mum, your dad, your brothers and your sisters? Yeah, yes, Sarah. I, I, I took the letter home that day. I left school early. I was, you know, I was, uh, well, they let me leave school early to go home. And I, I, I showed them the letter straight away and asked them, if they knew anything about it. And what could they tell you? They couldn't tell me anything. They were just as dumbfounded as me. What had they been led to believe had happened to your family? They, they were told that I, I was, uh, yeah, I, I'd survived a fire uh, somewhere in the outer suburb of Melbourne and most of my family had perished in this fire. I, I, I didn't know anything about my family or to what extent you know, you know, I had, how, how many siblings I had, you know, so I... That's what they told me, and you know, they were led to believe. Were you angry, Archie, hearing that what you'd been told, what they'd been told, wasn't true? I was, I was, I was confused, and I suppose a- angry. Yeah, yeah, you could say I was angry. I, I, I just, I just needed some answers. I said, well, yeah, you know, well, why would this woman, this lady, get in touch with me? This letter and. Uh, why was it? Why was it sent to the high school instead of home? Yeah. So yeah, yeah. I was I was confused and and, and yeah. I, I think I I got angry later, very angry. But I was more confused and I just needed I needed to to clear things up. I needed to understand what was going on. Yeah. How did things change for you at school after you got that letter? Oh, it's really sad. Um, I loved school. I loved uh, English. Was probably one of my favourite subjects. I loved to write. I loved words. I loved the history of words, where they came from, the English language. But after the letter, I just got—I know—I I wasn't interested that much anymore in learning anything. And uh, if people, you know, had a go at me for one reason or another, you know, or, or you know, or just call me a gollywog or being a little racist, you know, I'd get in a fight, so I'd fight them. It wasn't me. It wasn't like me to do that, but I did. I started smoking cigarettes at school, young age. I don't know, I, I, just, uh, I just turned my back on a lot of things that I loved. And so, yeah, I, I changed in that sense, yeah. Why did you decide to leave home, to leave the Cox's place? It was time, I think. You know, my brother Nolly, Nolly had... had, had had some contact with his family because he was, he was like that. Molly did a lot of stuff on his, you know, a lot of things on his on his own. But 
I just thought it was time to 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 go and find find out what was who I was, and if I could find this this family that um, uh, Myrtle who wrote me the letter. How old were you, Archie? I was at fifteen. So yeah. young, yeah. Did did you yeah. keep in contact with Mum Dulcie and Dad Alex after you left their place? No, I didn't. Unfortunately, I. Yeah, it was a hard time. It was a sad time. Because I loved them dearly, and um, I would have liked to have kept in contact with them, but yeah, you know, the way my my journey, the yeah, you know, how my journey um, unfolded, it um, I suppose it didn't allow me that um, privilege. You eventually made your way up to Sydney, hoping to find this family. Yes. Where did you live? Well, I came to a dead end. I, I didn't. I didn't find. This woman, I, I went to the address, but she, she wasn't there any longer. Nobody knew where she went. So I was at a loss. I met this old Aboriginal fellow in the park in Sydney, near Central Station. And um, I had my first drink of alcohol with him. He introduced you to alcohol? Yeah. I, I kind of liked it. Well, I did. I, lo- I, I liked it. And we stayed, you know, in places. He showed me the ropes, where to get a bed, uh, where to sleep, where, where to get a, something to eat, a meal. Uh, and things like that. So, and if you you couldn't find a place to a bed for the night, you'd, you'd probably find a, an empty house. People call them squats today. Yeah, or, or if it was a, a nice night, you, you know, somewhere in the park under the bushes. Something. So yeah, I was homeless. When when would you have your first drink of the day back then, Archie? Usually first thing in the morning. <laughs> since you opened your eyes, you know, and. Uh, you have a drink, and it's just something that you, you you got used to, got used to each day. What did the booze do for you back then? It made me feel feel better, you know. About you know, like um, I know I, was, I didn't have anywhere to stay to, to live. I, I I hadn't found this woman. I don't know. Yeah, you know, I was none the wiser for about my family. You were still just a kid, just fifteen, yeah, so, sixteen. I don't know. It was good. You know, it was, it was good. It kept yeah. You know, it, it stopped you from, you know, you could have a laugh, sing a song. It stopped you from, from, from thinking too much about that, about, you know, um, what had happened to me, you know. And I could just uh, have a joke and laugh with uh, my drinking mates, who, were, who, of course, were a lot older than me, but I'm the only friends I knew. How did you used to refer to the police back then? What did you call them? We called them demons. <laughs> what kind of contact did you have with the demons? They seem to you know, harass you know, a lot of us, you know, drink, drinkers you know, or parkies. Parkies, I suppose you'd call us, people that frequented the parks and, and, and drank, especially especially uh, Indigenous people, drank in, in groups. So every now and then they just you know, um, put you off the street, you know, arrest you and, and lock you up for drunk. Or, or The vagrancy was, was around that vagrancy. Or, you know, like being locked up for no sufficient means of support and no fixed address. So if you had no money and you were homeless, apparently that was a crime. We used to get arrested for it. What job did you have the first stint you were in Long Bay? Oh, gosh. No, that was one, that was the worst job when we went to Long Bay, the first stint in Long Bay. We were in the section of Long Bay Prison, which hadn't had any, any, any plumbing or sewerage. Yet so we was all given these these tents. Yeah, you know, I was I was in in a Peter, in a cell with with, with two other fellas, 
And so they gave you a tin to, to, to go to the toilet in. We had, we had a tin each and not just number ones but number twos as well. All <laughs> the numbers. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, so, yeah, it stink up the cellar a bit but that was, that was one of my jobs. We'd, we'd go down and collect the, the tins from, from that section of the prison and had to clean them out. Oh, Disgusting that, job. That is the worst job in a prison, surely. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> Yeah. And still, you would have probably been underage. I'm, I'm guessing you would have been younger than eighteen. Yeah, I was probably getting on to sixteen yeah. now, and because uh, a couple of couple of um, brothers in, in there, you know, spotted me looking at me, and they looked at me and said, "What are you doing here?" Oh, v- vagrancy. He said, "No, no, what are you doing in jail?" I said, "Well, they locked me up." He said, "How old are you? You look about 16. I said, no, I'm 19. And I said, no, you're not. And I said, anyway, we'll keep an eye on you. And they did. They, they looked after me. You'd gone to Sydney to try to, to find a sister or, or a brother, someone from your family. How did you finally meet your sister, Diana? Never forget that. Never forget it to this day. It's one of my favourite stories, I think, to, uh, that I recount. You see, my... My, my mentor, he took me under his wing, you know, and showed me the ropes, you know, and, and taught me to drink alcohol. He always told me to use a bodgy name. I, I didn't know what a bodgy name was. He said, well, it's, it's an alias. It's not your real name. Just make up a name so you don't, when you, if you're picked up by the police, you don't have, have a record. So I did. A lot of people knew me by this alias or bodgy name. But I remember going and getting a drink on me and I, I couldn't find... My friends, you know, Albert, my old mate, my old mentor had left and I couldn't seem to track down the rest of the old drinking school. So I, I ended up buying a, a drink myself and going to uh, Chinaman's Lane there in the Haymarket district. I was there on my own and pretty much drank a whole bottle of wine to myself and I was pretty, it wrecked me pretty much and I staggered back to the hotel. People you see every day were there. I was paralytic, drunk, and I was sitting in a chair and it was like, I don't know, only people who have ever been in this situation that have got that drunk would probably know. It's like you're not, you're not really there or you're almost an out-of-body experience being that drunk. And um, someone came up to me, a, a woman, a young woman, and asked me my name. And I blurted out, you know, Archie Roach. You know, my real name didn't worry about my bodgy name, my alias. And she said, who? I said, Archie Roach. And she said, just wait a minute. And she went over and started talking to this other girl. And she got up. She had this strangest look on her face and came walking up towards me. And she asked me, like the other girl did, asked me my name. I said, look, it's Archie Roach. Why? It's Archie Roach. So could you just leave me alone? I, you know, I'm drunk. I just want to sit here and just chill. And then she started asking me who my brothers and sisters were. And I go, what? She said, who's your brothers and sisters? So I said, well, my older brother, Johnny... Yeah, I referred back to to, to Myrtle's letter because I realised, yeah, you know, by 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 now that, that yeah, it's me. This is my sister, and I am Archie Roach. And uh, I said, uh, I have an older brother, Johnny, uh, big sister Alma, and uh, there's Myrtle, Lawrence, you know, Gladys, Gladys, Diana, and there's me. And she still wasn't satisfied, you know. And I was like, just just leave me alone. And uh, she said, well, what's your mother's name? I said, Nellie, and she passed away a couple of years ago. Nellie Austin, and your father's name? So I can't believe this woman. I really can't believe it. 
I said, why don't you just go and leave me alone? So tell me your father's name. I said, well, if you know my name, Archie Roach, you'll know my father's name because I was named after him. And she whacked me fair on the chin, hit me on the chin, knocked me flying off my chair, and that's it. I just wanted to get away from her. And she reached down to grab me, and I'm, you know, and I'm, you know, I'm hitting her hands away from me. Leave me alone, you mad woman. What do you want? What did you hit me for? And she looked at me and, and said, I'm your sister, Diana. So, yeah, that was, a, was probably as short as I could, I could, I could tell it. <laughs> what was that reunion like? What could she tell you about your family and where they were, what had happened to you all? Yeah, she, well, the sad, saddest things was she, she told me about Grady, Gladys, and Gladys had, had, had passed away too. She'd been killed in a car accident, Grady and her husband. Yeah, so that was a shock and... I was sad to hear that because I I started to have strong memories of Gladdy, you know, uh, standing up, yes, probably, you know, me behind her and, and Gladdy would be standing there with her fists up, ready to hit some boy on the chin, defending me. And uh, I heard she was pretty formidable as a, as a young young girl too, could fight like a boy. And uh, so I was really saddened to hear that, that I'd never get to see Gladdy. But she, yeah, she talked, she said that Myrtle, I asked about Myrtle, is, is where is Myrtle? Where'd she go? She, oh, she went back to Melbourne, you know, had to be with Alma, her other sister, and Lawrence. Lawrence had moved down with his wife, Sally, and uh, she was the only one left, left in Sydney, Diana. Did Diana remember that day when you'd been taken from your mum and dad? I asked her, and I asked her, do you have much memory of, of, of what happened? And um, she, she didn't talk about it much, whether she did or not. She said, no, not really. I just remember being, you know, being driven in, in, a, in a big car and ending up at um, the Salvation Army orphanage for, for girls. And the only reason I was there was because I was a toddler, you know, two years old, three years old. And the girls used to, all the girls used to look after the little ones. No, she didn't didn't, uh, recall much about that day. Yeah. Podcast, broadcast and online. You're listening to Conversations with Sarah Konoski. Hear more Conversations anytime on the ABC Listen app or go to abc.net.au slash conversations. Archie, you were describing how you found your sister, Diana, in Sydney, and she told you that your other siblings were back in Melbourne. Mm. How did you go about finding them? I landed in Melbourne. Didn't know anything, where to start, where to look. So I was pretty much in the city, and I found people. Yeah, but they weren't Aboriginal people, but they were, they were like me. They were, they, they were drinkers, they were drunks and, and homeless. We were the same people, you know, we, we had, you know, shared the same experience and there's really no difference between us except I was Aboriginal and, and they weren't. 
And so I, I struck up friendship with these these gentlemen. I learned where to you know, where to get a bed and where to get something to eat. You go to do you know, to to one of the churches and they you know, you listen to a sermon, and then you get you know, a cup of tea and sandwiches or something. So this was a day consisted of you know going walking the hungry mile, getting a feed here and there, and going back to uh, a bed for the night, and drinking wherever you could. How did you find your way to Fitzroy? Well, we were sitting in the park one time where we were drinking, drinking across the road from uh, Osnham House, where we stayed. Yeah, I hadn't seen any, any, any black faces, any Aboriginal people. It was a big park, you know, back at the Royal Children's Hospital. And you know, I could see a, a guy walking down the hill. And I pegged him straight away. That's a, that's a black fella. That's an Aboriginal fella. As he got closer, gee, I was happy. To see a black face. He sat down and said, oh, can I join you fellas? I said, yeah, sit down. He looked across at me and said, hey, brother. I said, yeah, I'm good. Gee, I can't tell you how good it is to see see another black face, another you know, Aboriginal fellow, because I've been, I've been here in Melbourne for ages. I haven't seen any countrymen anywhere. And he goes, oh, they're all in Fitzroy. You should go to Fitzroy. He said, yeah. Sometimes I like to get away, you know, when they got, especially when I'm cashed up. Yeah. So I got a bit of money, so I decided to get away for a while before you know, I spent all my money in Fitzroy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so but when I, you when you took yourself off to Fitzroy, yeah, did you find brothers and sisters there? Very first day. <laughs> that, as soon as I left, that that you know, I, I left my mates there, and this, this Aboriginal fella. I said, "Go on, your mate. Thank you very much." And walked, walked, followed his directions, and ended up walking down Gertrude Street in Fitzroy. And there was this fellow standing outside a hotel. You know, and the way he was standing, it didn't. I said, oh, I, "I know it looks a bit sus, this fella." Cause I thought he was, you know, wanted to, wanted to fight me. And uh, the closer I got, you know, he's looking harder. And as soon as I got right up close to him, he looked at me again and said. Nah. He said, sorry, brother, I thought you were someone else. You walk like him. You've got the same walk and everything, the way you carry yourself. It's exactly the same, but you're shorter and you're a bit younger. I said, well, who's that? Who did you think I was? And he goes, I thought you was horse. I said, horse? Who's horse? Johnny, big Johnny Roach. And I said, that's my brother. And he looked at me, his eyes wide, and he said, do you just wait here? And he went to the pub and he brought out this this uh, Aboriginal woman, beautiful woman, long black hair. He said to her, he asked her straight away, he said, now do you know who this young fellow is? And uh, she hadn't seen me since I was two. You know, I was about 16 now. And she looked at me. Straight away, she said, that's my baby brother, Archie. With no hesitation. Don't I ask you? Must have been something. What did they used to call you, Archie, when you were a little boy? Butter boy. Yeah. <laughs> that's butter boy. That's my baby brother, Archie. And, uh, you know, we just, I don't melted into each other. And um, it was a beautiful time, beautiful time. And she said, quick, 
we'll go and have a quick drink. And then she stopped and said, do you drink? I said, yeah, I have a drink. Little did she know. She said, we'll go and have one beer. Then we go down to the builders. Yeah, this other pub just down the road. Your brother's there. They walked in quickly, got a, had a beer, sculled that. And uh, we walked down to the Builders Arms Hotel where Lawrence was, my brother Lawrence. And uh, he was there and Alma, Alma, Alma yelled out to him, Lawrence, look here, do you know who this is? And Lawrence looked for a while. He looked a bit confused and looked at Alma and looked at me. And suddenly dawned, then you could see this realisation in his face, yeah. And he was knocking over chairs and tables almost just to get to me. He grabbed me and go, butter boy. Hmm. Could they tell you stories about your mum and dad? They didn't, um, they didn't like to talk about mum and dad things. They talk about dad, they talk about mum. But I didn't talk much about circumstances, which was, I suppose, I wanted to know more about, you know. And uh, some things are, are still just as vague today. I know Mum and Dad got married through records up in New South Wales, and Johnny was the only, out of all of us, he's the only New South Welshman. He was born in Grafton. But this is the stuff that I found out myself. Um, Do you have any photos of your mum and your dad together? Only one. Only one photo that we've, we've ever found. I have a few photos of my dad, but I don't have a photo of just of my mum on her own. It's the most peculiar thing. I'm not quite sure why that is. Maybe with this book coming out, something might turn up. Who knows? Yeah. Some of those photos of your dad show him boxing. He was a, a mm. tent boxer. Yeah, yeah. You did a bit of that too, Archie. I did for a little while. What was your uh, nickname as a tent boxer? Well, well Dad, they used to call Dad Snowball because he went prematurely sort of grey and white hair, flecks of white through his hair. So when Leachie, when I was fighting for Leachie, the, the, one of the last boxing troops in, uh, in, in Victoria... He, the, he called me, he said, what was your dad's name? What did they call your dad? I said, Snowball. He said, well, you'll be Kid Snowball. So was Kid Snowball. <laughs> Who's going to take on Kid Snowball? What kind of boxer were you? Um, average, I think. <laughs> I, I wasn't, you, you didn't, you, you didn't have the heart. You know, you, you'd be giving it to somebody and they, and they had no clue about fighting. At least I had a little bit of an idea. <laughs> yeah. Too much of a softie to be a good tent boxer. Tell me about the first time that you saw Ruby Hunter. It was in Adelaide. Eh? It was in Adelaide and, and we were staying in a place called the People's Palace. The Salvation Army used to run these big grand hotels but they were just for people that uh, didn't have anywhere to stay or couldn't afford accommodation. So that's where I was staying for, for two weeks. And uh, I remember walking, walking down the stairs because I didn't like the lifts. They were too old, you know, and they just didn't look safe. <laughs> so I walked down the steps and uh, 
walked down the steps one time and not long after the, the, the lift opened and this um, girl came out with, with two other people. I was taken by this 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 young young woman, this this girl. I remember having, you know, black hair and she's wearing a blue dress with a white cardigan, white socks and black shoes. And um biggest eyes you ever seen, brown eyes and you know, these cheeks. And uh, I said, Wow. Anyway, I went up and started talking to to the, to the man that was she was with, and said, "Oh, yeah, so could you tell me where all the black fellows um, hang out with a, with a drink and just show us where they are, and you know, or give us a knockdown, you know, introduction, give us a bit of a knockdown to these fellows." And uh, before he could reply, this this girl you know, butted in and goes, "Oh, you want to know where all the black fellows hang out, dear?" Well, just follow me. <laughs> and that was Ruby Hunter. <laughs> yeah. you, you two fell in love and had children, but the drinking was really rough. It was bad. Really bad. Mm, yeah. How did you finally get clean from oh, that? Oh, gosh. It took a long time, many tries. And a long time. Uh, I think the final straw come for me when... When Ruby left with our two boys when they were little because, you know, like if you're spending most of your money on alcohol, and, you know, and you, you try to, try to you know, feed your family as well, and it, it can be hard. As, uh, and uh, Ruby, Ruby wanted a better life, so she left with the boys. And uh, I got really sick about a day or so after, and had this, had this terrible grand mal seizure, fit, and ended up in hospital with a, yeah, ended up in hospital and they had to, they had to put a tube down me, not a tube, it was sort of like a, some sort of tubing thing that I had to keep my mouth open. Um, wasn't long after that that a friend of mine came, came in to see us, uh, well, a friend of family hadn't, Seen for years and the Aboriginal fella, but he he stopped drinking, sobered up. He looked pretty sharp too and nice and clean. I said, "Well, you look, you looking all right." He said, "Yeah, don't drink anymore, bus." And he said, "I, I'm working in a place uh, rehab. Uh, would you like to when you get out of hospital? Would you, you know, like to come come there?" And I said, "What was it the same place?" You, we went to once before, me and Ruby, and um, said, yeah, but we're di- we're, it's a different location now. It's a better program. I said, oh, yeah. I said, oh, I'll give it a go. And I did, and um, that's how, you know, Ruby gone, and she decided to take her off to re- herself off to rehabilitation too, with the children with her, with the boys with her. And I was somewhere else, and... Uh, and finally, finally uh, stopped drinking. Yeah, slowly, but surely, mm. day at a time. <laughs> yeah. You started writing more songs, playing more music. Tell me about writing They Took the Children Away. Where did you write that song? I wrote that down in um, Framlingham, the place that I was taken from. 
where mum was born. I end up going back there and there's still people still live there, even though it's no longer a mission. Run by the church and so a lot of people have been there for a long time. They were never left. And so I I go back every now and then. Especially when I when I sobered up. You know, when you stop drinking, when it was such a huge thing in your life, it leaves this big gap in, in, in your life when you stop it. So I had to fill it up with something else and and music and start to write a few songs uh, here and there. And um, But they're more like country songs, hungover and songs like that, song about drinking, <laughs> which I knew a little bit about. But my Uncle Banjo came up to me one time and said, I hear you've been writing songs. You write songs, don't you, my boy? I said, yeah, well, I try, Uncle. You know? He said, why don't you write a song about when you was taken away? I said, oh, I don't remember much about that at all, Uncle. And he looked at me and he said, yeah, but I do. I think that's one of the reasons I wrote it. Because we tend to forget... You know, not just, you know, we, we talk about the kids that were taken away, but we don't talk about much about the people who we were taken from. And Uncle Banjo was one of them. And uh, he told us a bit of a yarn about that, about the day. And I sat down that night, started writing the song, and uh, the best part of the next morning, and I finished it. Went around to Uncle Banjo's, and I said, have a listen to this, Unc. And Zang took the children away to him. And uh, he looked at me and smiled and said, That's him. That's him, my boy. That's him. I'll never forget it. That's how that song came to be. When you started singing that song, Gosh. what kind of reaction did you get from Aboriginal people? I first sang it in 1988 in Sydney. La Perouse, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Island peoples converged on, on Sydney from all over the country to um, protest or march against the, the Bicentennial, you know, proclaiming 40,000 years or more. And we know it's more now. We've been in this land, this country. But um, for one reason or another, they, they had an open forum there and um, I ended up getting up singing I said, I've got nothing to say, but I've got a song. I just want to sing it to you. So I sang. So he started strumming. Yeah, it wasn't an electric guitar, or I didn't have a pickup, but I strummed it anyway. Got close to the mic as I could with the guitar and my vocal. And, and sang the song right through. And uh, I remember putting the guitar down and uh, I'm looking at these people, and it was dead silent, you know. You know, you can see you can see old women, you know, and women they're crying, and all the men, big men, grown men, just with their heads down, not looking anywhere, and you can just see their shoulders, their shoulders heaving, and uh, I didn't know what to say or what to think. I said, "That's all I've got to say," and. Uh, and yeah, these two old people came up to me, 
not long after, from Northern Territory. And uh, yeah, this big, tall Aboriginal man must have been 70-something. And uh, this woman, almost as tall as him, you know, beautiful floral dress she had on. You know, he looked, he looked like some, some, you know, this tall cowboy. And uh, he said, who'd you write that song for? Who's about? I said, oh, about me. He said, no, nah, that's about me. I said, true. He said, yeah. He said, I'm 76 years of age. This is my sister. She's 72. I met her last year. Stunned me. I just stood there. I said, what? I met her last year. And I just, uh, that stopped me. And it, it dawned on me this realisation that this, this happened for a very long time in this country to a lot of people, not just my own family. So, yeah, so I uh, had no idea really at first, even back in, you know, even in 1988. You know, I thought I was pretty, I was pretty well versed on, 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 on what's been going on with Aboriginal people through the years and myself. But you know, maybe I was too preoccupied with what had happened to me uh, without realising that it was something that happened to a lot of people. Yeah. One of the big fans of that song, Archie, was Paul Kelly, who invited yeah. you to, to open for a show he was having in Melbourne. Who did you think Paul Kelly was when he first came up to say g'day to you? Well, we were, I was sitting there in the green room you know, having a cup of tea and these nice sandwiches, but they cut the crusts off. I said, why would you cut the crust <laughs> off the sandwich? Yeah. I said, well, it's the most ridiculous thing I've ever seen. So I was eating them anyway. And uh, <laughs> and uh, this lad poked his head around the corner. He's just all in black, black sort of wavy hair, yeah, and broken nose. I said, oh, yeah, he looks like a lightweight. Looks like a featherweight. Looks like Johnny Famishon. So I thought, oh, security. Probably one of the security bouncers. Yeah. And uh, he said, you're right, are you? I said, yeah, I've got some um, sandwiches <laughs> and some biscuits, cup of tea. What more could you ask for? <laughs> he said, yeah, I hope it goes well. I said, thanks, mate. And, uh, yeah, so um, I played, did my, my, my two songs and another band came on, played. And next minute they're saying, Paul Kelly gets up. So I was going to leave. I think I said, I think I'll go listen to Paul Paul Kelly and get a glimpse of who he is because I don't know who he is. And in walks this guy, this, this little bouncer, I thought, <laughs> you know, with guitar strapped around him, these other fellows, and they walked out on stage and started singing these songs that I'd heard probably nearly every day on the radio. So that's Paul Kelly. <laughs> and I thought he was on security. <laughs> he, um, he got you to record your first album, Charcoal Lane. Yeah. And Ruby started making music too and performing too. What was it like watching her on stage? Oh, she, she, she developed into this, this, this amazing, you know, singer. And uh, she was up to dress up. 
you know, in feathers and and uh, bush bush jewelry like like myself. And um, you know, I love to see how she how she interacted with an audience and how much they they loved it. It was yeah, it was a beautiful beautiful thing to see. It was great because you know when she you know, she she came out of that shell. I remember when she first started performing, it was a bit, she was a bit nervous and that. But after a while, she was so strong, courageous on stage, yeah. She passed away back in 2010. How is it now for you performing without her? What's that like on stage without Ruby? Oh, you know, it's, um, at first it was hard. Uh, but now, you know, it, it's, it's, uh, it's something that I've, I, 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 I love to do and the sort of interaction I have and with, with people, people that come and see me, it's a, it's a two-way street. It's a, it's a, it's a sharing. It's a, what we give each other. And uh, we, we do miss it, of course. All those people that you've loved, Archie, that, that are gone, Ruby and your mum and dad, your sisters, your brothers, how are they present for you now? How do you think about how you relate to them now? Oh, they're always uh, around. They're always with me in my, in, in my thoughts, uh, in my memories, you know. Nobody ever truly goes, you know, or dies when you, when you have memories. And uh, and when I remember certain things that we did, and it's uh, yeah, it puts a smile on my face, and uh, I find myself sitting there talking to the air sometimes, just saying, "Yeah, that was a good day, Buzz, or that was a good day, my sister, or remember that sister, brother, remember that Rube, and Mum and Dad." Well, you, you just think, you know, yeah, you just talk to them as well, and you just wish. Wish I had an onion, wish we had had time. I, that's why I write a song. I write songs like the old Mission Road. I wish I'd gone fishing with the father that I'm missing. The touch of his strong, gentle hands. I wish I had grown with my, you know, my mother back home because I missed her sweet kisses and her smile. And those, a song like that keeps me, you know, yeah, and, uh, so that, that, that helps. It's been such a privilege to talk to you. Thank you so much, Archie, for coming on Conversations. Thank you, Sarah. You've been listening to a podcast of Conversations with Sarah Kanoski. For more Conversations interviews, head to the website abc.net.au slash conversations.